This is an ABC podcast. Greetings from Hobart. Hey, Miyuki Okiranda here. And on earshot, for the last in our series of audio postcards, we're taking a stroll up Elizabeth Street in Hobart, starting from the colonial-era docks in the centre of town, all the way to beyond the flannelette curtain, to the suburb of Moona. Elizabeth Street reveals tales of stolen land, a broken tram, and the art that ate Hobart. We'll let local artsy activist Kate Kelly show us the sights. I just remember being fascinated by the bullet holes in the wall. At that time, we lived just off Elizabeth Street, and there was a burnt-out car right outside our house. We called it Little Beirut because it was just, it was a bit dodgy. You get bits that are run down and bits that are, are kind of quite grand, cheek by jowl. I had made relations on the mainland. When I went to visit them as a child, they were sorry for me coming from this provincial backwater and I had the feeling they were speaking slowly and kindly to the Tasmanian. And that continued all through the 70s and 80s into the 90s. And then that all changed with Mona, but with other things as well. There's the kind of landed gentry that are still here. There's the transported convicts that are still here. The Aboriginal community is still here. So everyone's still here. It's just that time has kind of collapsed. And instead of it like, oh, it's a lot to introduce of figuring it out, it feels like five minutes. And not everyone is running around going, I'm a convict or, you know, I'm, I'm a transported felon. But it's sort of the same, really. And the same constabulary, I think, are still chasing the same families, really. And the Aboriginal community is still like trying to say, you know, these, this is what we demand, these are our rights, this is our country. So, yeah, you just kind of enter into something where it's all time and we're all in this, you know, giant kind of tumble dryer together. I know what Julie's talking about. I've walked up and down Elizabeth Street at all different times of the day in various states of repair. I've worked at a lot of the pubs and the cafes and for many years I lived just off Elizabeth Street in North Hobart. All my friends live there too, so I've done a lot of playing in the area. I have so many memories up and down this street. Good and bad. I'm Lee Woolley, I'm a Tasmanian architect, and I also practice as an urban design consultant. So here we are on the corner of Macquarie Street and Elizabeth Street. It's where Elizabeth Street historically stopped It used not to go through to Sullivan's Cove because there was the government house, the original government house for the colony. It's also a place where we can appreciate from the centre of the city that this is a small city in a large landscape. When people talk about the mountain, you know, they describe it, not we don't, but other people do, describe it as looming over Hobart. I find the mountain is something that we're very, very conscious of. For some people, it has a certain sort of, in a sense, a protective quality. You know, it's like the big guy, it's got our back. Coming into Hobart, there's that wonderful view of the mountain, rather like a sort of crouching lion, I used to think. Well, that's not very much, but you know, a childish imagination. But it was a friendly lion. It was a sort of nice, comforting mountain. I'm Alison Alexander. 
I was born in Hobart. I've lived here all my life and I'm a historian. In the first place, Hobart was very hildy-pildy. The whole place was very ad hoc and nobody knew, I don't think there were any town planners, any, anybody who knew anything about planning in that first fleet. And so people just built what they wanted to. Then Macquarie came down in 1811 and said, you need a plan and drew up a plan. Main streets were Macquarie Street after himself and Elizabeth Street after his wife. The first shops, uh, I know because my husband had an ancestor who had a shop here. It was a house with two rooms on Elizabeth Street and a skilling out the back. And they slept in one room and the other room had a curtain that divided it between their living quarters and the shop in front. So it was pretty small. And he just sold whatever he could get hold of. It was all very hand to mouth, that early settlement. None of the early governors were firm or even indeed honest. They often joined in. You put in your claim for your government job, you inflated it you know, four times the figure, you got a JP to say, yes, he did it, and this is all honest, and you put it into London, and what could they do? They had to pay. For the first 20 years, nobody wanted to be here. They all wanted just to make money and get away. It was different, and it was the other side of the world, and it was primitive, and it was awful. My name's Sean Kelly, and I'm a curator, an arts writer, based in Hobart, Tasmania. With a name like Kelly, Dad and I have to have some Irish ancestry back there somewhere, which is pretty common in Tasmania. And for many years I've been uh, dwelling in North Hobart, which is uh, a really interesting part of Hobart. It started working class, and it was still working class in the, in the 60s and 70s. And it's bisected by the, uh, by the spine of, of Hobart, which is Elizabeth Street. And we've always looked at positives of being here. And I remember as a child, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I was on my way to school with a bunch of other primary school children. And all we could talk about was the possibility of nuclear war. We came to the conclusion that if there is going to be a nuclear war, then it's a good thing we're in Tasmania, because it's not going to come down this far. The way the invaders treated the local Palawa people is a shameful part of Hobart's history. Right here in the lower section of Elizabeth Street, there was once a waterhole known as the Pool of the Aborigines. If you're putting a sort of pin in, in uh, Nipaluna Hobart for where Aboriginal people were circulating to and from, it's where we're standing right now. I'm Julie Goff. I live here in Nipaluna Hobart. Um, I'm a Tasmanian Aboriginal woman, artist and a writer and a curator at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. So we're um, behind the buildings on the corner of Elizabeth and Warwick Street, which is somewhere between Hobart and North Hobart. We're standing on the grounds where a man that was employed by the government from 1829 till he departed for Port Phillip in the late 1830s. His name was George Augustus Robinson, and he was funded by the government to be the so-called conciliator of the Aborigines. His house he built here, yeah, it's not well known. I think it was very well known till about the 1920s, so 100 years ago now. He lived here, he arrived in 1823, and six years after his arrival he was engaged to, to try to round up, convince Aboriginal people to travel with him, and he came up with the exile removal plan for Aboriginal people. And this where we're standing now is where his house was built, and in the rear where we are are outbuildings that appear of the same vintage, so the late 1820s. 
that waterhole retained that name till the 1930s in the print press, the Pool of the Aborigines, and described as where Aboriginal people bathed and were present. So I feel that that is also a reason why Aboriginal people were willing to come into the White Township here. And even, I think, till the 1830s, Hobart was known as the camp. So it was still, you know, pretty rugged down here. They would stay here in the in the rear of the house. And the um, range of people, it, it includes two of my direct ancestors, but it's really, I would say, hundreds of Aboriginal people over at least five years came and went from here. This was a pivot point. And when I was young, nobody in Tasmania had ever seen a person with dark skin, except perhaps if they had arrived here from India or somewhere. But, you know, we weren't aware that on Cape Barren Island and the other, some of the other islands in the Bath Strait, there were people who were directly descended from the last of the Tasmanian full-blood Aboriginal people. It started to surprise the older generation. I mean, all of a sudden these people appeared and they were referring to themselves and choosing as their identity and their cultural frame that they were Tasmanian Aboriginals. Heading further up Elizabeth Street, it gets pretty steep and it might surprise you to know that trams once ran up and down here during the first half of the 20th century. But on the 29th of April in 1960, there was a collision and the brakes on one of the trams failed it began rolling backwards. Well, Elizabeth Street's actually on a bit of a slope as it goes down toward the water, and the story was the tram driver couldn't stop the tram, so he stayed on board the tram ringing the bell until it crashed and he was killed in that crash. The trams never ran on Elizabeth Street again, but that was well before my time as an art student living in share houses around there. Jackie O'Toole is a friend of mine from back then. She also has some Irish ancestry. She and I were partners in many a theatrical crime. I really spent a fair bit of time in Elizabeth Street around the late 80s, early 90s. At that time, I was an art school student. There were some terrific places that were share houses available in that North Hobart stretch of Elizabeth Street at the time. Not only that, I um, worked in a couple of cafes at different spots in Elizabeth Street as well. When I moved into 316 Elizabeth Street, none of the houses had been done up or gentrified. Um, It was a really cheap place to be able to rent as a student. I lived in a house full of hippies that used to take baths together in the backyard and chop firewood in the lounge room, so you wouldn't find that happening inside these houses now. But I really remember we used to sit on the balcony and look along that part of Elizabeth Street going, wouldn't it be great if there were some restaurants here or a wine bar here? You know, there's nothing here. Just sort of, it was in a really in-between time then. One other thing I recall working at the grocery store deli was that Not only did we try and get these lovely products in for the Italian community, we also used to try and get some organic veggies in. And there was one guy who lived nearby, about the same age as me, who used to bring in a box of veggies from his own garden every couple of weeks. And to me, he seemed a little bit bit simple, but pretty harmless, and I was always really nice to him. 
In Tasmania, at least 12 people have been shot dead by a gunman at the Port Arthur Historic Site, 100 kilometres southeast of Hobart. And it turned out that that was actually Martin Bryant. And years later, when the terrible Port Arthur massacre happened, I was actually meant to be there that day. I was meant to be filming down there. It was a perfect, beautiful sunny day. And I thought, great, all the shots are going to match. But the director and the cameraman had been out the night before and got drunk and had had a big hangover. So they said, oh, we're not going to go back this Sunday and finish the job. We'll do it next week. And that didn't really suit me. And I was really cross and said, no, we have to go today. And thank goodness we didn't because who knows what would have happened. That was the day of the Port Arthur massacre. 12 confirmed dead and possibly 22. There are further 15 injured. And at the moment we have a hostage and siege situation. Yeah, I often thought, I wonder if Martin Bryant would have shot me too because I was always so kind to him when he used to come into the shop in Elizabeth Street. One of my prevailing memories uh, that I think actually is an important cultural memory that a lot of Hobart may not be aware of or has forgotten is the history in that street of artist-run initiatives. A lot of artists congregated around Elizabeth Street in those spaces and for many of us it was the first place we were able to show our work. My dad and I lived in, you know, flats that we called Little Beirut. I was on the ground floor, he was on the top floor and there was a drug dealer in the one next to us. And um, yeah, my dad and I used to run performance poetry nights and, you know, brackets and jam nights together. and. We often used to perform together and they were often poetry song kind of things about, you know, seedy bars and things. That was around the time that the empire got shut up and I remember my dad writing a poem about that. Uh, the poem's called I Wasn't There. The day they shut up the empire, I wasn't there at the bar, but I heard about it soon after and I know who the principals are. It was quiet and sunny that day the light slanted in from northwest. A couple of punters were drinking. The pool game took care of the rest. The Republic has been my pub of choice for many years, but um, before it became the Republic, it was the Empire. A very down on, down at heel hotel, uh, badly in need of, um, of uh, sort of somebody to take it over and uh, and make it viable and make it pleasant. Tony Heath. Um, it was the publican and starter of the Republic Bar in 1997. At that stage, when we took over, North Hobart was a very, just about dead. And right from the word go, this place just took off. We were doing good food, live music seven nights a week, and, uh, and the place was just pumping, and it was just the takings and the, and the volume of people just continually grew all the way through until I left the place. In the evenings when we did a, a show of performance poetry it was quite different it was much more lively sort of poetry and um, you had a different crowd and I can remember standing up on that stage there and having guys yelling and screaming and carrying on at the back and taking no notice and having to you know basically get their attention they fronted the bar all together and fired off a volley or two. 
The glass tumbled down on the barman. The mirrors and whiskey fell too. Then they turned to the rest of the patrons, by this time all flat on the floor. They knocked out some sundry fittings and knocked out sundry more. It was then that they all seemed to hear it. The thing that they'd missed in the roar. Van Morrison, plaintively singing the song that they'd queued up before. Well, he lined up the sawn off on Van and let go a deafening blast. The jukebox guts blew out backwards and Morrison warbled his last. I can show you the spot by the window where the jukebox once used to stand and you can make up the picture with the images you have to hand. Dad didn't quite get his facts right. If you go looking for the bullet holes today, you won't find them where the jukebox stood. I think it was in that, just that space there. That's right. Was, in here. I think just here. Well, yeah, because it wasn't the stage there then. That's right. The phone still had the bullet hole in it. The impression yeah. I got from my friend was that there were other people in the yeah, bar. Yeah, no, there was, so the bar was completely cleared and the bar was standing across the street. Oh, right. He knew they were coming, so oh. they came into an empty bar. Oh, well, a bit of poetic licence. Tony Heath says the shooting was because of a territorial dispute over sex workers. AJ, AJ, the biker, the, uh, the rebels, rebels man. He was running prostitutes in Hobart and one of the guys running the pub here when it was the Empire had prostitutes working upstairs and consequently six people came in balaclavas of a night, just came in with their shotguns and blasted all the windows, shook the jukebox, the phone, uh, you know, just shut off the place really. And, uh, you know, and then they left. They went to court, but they never got convicted, though. This would have been 1996. I remember seeing the, the bullet holes in the windows. Yeah. yeah, it was true. I think that was almost a turning point because I think everyone collectively freaked out and some of the focus became on how can we make Elizabeth Street less grungy, less grotty, how can we make sure people come here after these things happen? But once the Republic Bar started taking off, I think that was really the first bit of it because they attracted a different clientele to what would come up to North Hobart prior to that. Also, of course, it was very political at the time, hence being called the Republic, having changed its name from the Empire. There were always wonderful banners up on the pub, you know, about forest protests, things like that. So it had also very much a, a green vibe to it, I guess. Yeah, it was just a great pub for music and for people that thought the same way. I was one of those people, pretty left, green, socialist. There's no justice, there's just us. If we continue up Elizabeth Street here, this just runs into North Hobart. As you head up beyond the Republic, Elizabeth Street rises steeply through North Hobart on its way out of town. As you can hear, we're slightly, not particularly exasperated. From this location, we see to the, not only to Knock Lofty in the mid-rise, but beyond that, the high ground of Kinanyi and the Wellington Range, which means we understand that this is a small city, a small settlement in a larger landscape. Being a bit higher was healthier because the miasma and the germs tended to be down in the poor parts that were down near the wharves where, for employment and where 
industry where people are employed. So if you could afford to be a bit higher with a view, which is nice, and then it's all suburban, going out through Newtown, which is a very nice place to live, not far from town, nice houses. Then along to Creek Road. Now, this is called the Flannelette Curtain nowadays, and it probably was then too, because that's where the working class starts. Moona. So this is proudly working class, not at all grovelling working class, because they had good jobs at the zinc works. For us, the Flannelette Curtain was always that divide between Newtown and Moona. The alleged bikies that shot up the Empire Hotel probably came from beyond the flannelette curtain. Bikies were sort of frowned on, but sort of fun at the same time. You've got your, your people who like their rougher activities. Their drinking and their bike riding and their, uh, you know, boxing and fighting and having a brawl in the street and whatnot. Jackie and I were part of an interesting eight-ball team called the Busty Tarts that played competitive pool in some of the pubs on the other side of the curtain. Around the time that the Empire Hotel changed and became the Republic, there were still a few fairly rough pubs, but they were a bit further out. I joined the Busty Tarts because I worked in the pub that was their home ground. And I was pretty busty. (laughs) And the funniest thing was that not only were these males in the flannelette curtain pubs not used to playing against females and certainly didn't like to be beaten by them. Half our eight ball team were also gay women and the pub we played for was the first pub that was ever welcoming to the transgender and gay community. So they became our cheer squad. I mean, as much as they were really rough pubs, I think we broke down a lot of barriers through eight ball and that team. Dad also worked in an art gallery out beyond the flannelette curtain. Yep, they had them there too. And he hung out in pubs there, like the mustard pot. It was not unusual um, at the end of the night in the mustard pot for the park, the car park out the back to be sort of occupied by uh, a brawl, you know, because uh, there was always sort of uh, angst and, 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 and grumpiness and things would happen within the pub. And of course, at the end of the night, the pub with people or during the night they'd send them outside to resolve it you know and I mean people would get knifed you know once in a while nobody got killed while I worked out there but people would get knifed and, and the ambulance would come and it was all that was the end of a great night the ambulance has arrived time to go home but it was another art gallery that opened in 2011 way out in the suburbs that put Hobart on the map of the international skivvy and beret set I welcome you to an absolute capacity crowd. You can see why I always look forward to talking to David. A journalist for the Canberra Times wrote an article that I... It's one of the few things I've ever read that I completely agreed with, and it was called... I took my children to a sex and death museum. And... um, (laughs) David Walsh, uh, a Glenorchy boy, northern suburbs, north of the flannel curtain, a savant, organised this way of making money. And he decided to put this major museum in a place where you normally wouldn't think of doing it. It was, you know, in that that sort of non-artistic sort of area, non-cultural area. 
but how it impacted Tasmania is almost incalculable. From the day it opened, the whole concept was so international in its conception, yet strangely so local at the same time, that he managed to create an impact which went beyond national. It was terribly exciting. And the whole story of the poor local boy made good through gambling. People were very proud of David Rourke. Mona might have made the arts cool beyond the flannelette curtain, but the curtain itself was fading as the northern suburbs started to become gentrified. The symbolic end of the curtain was celebrated by Dad's artist friends in a ceremonial curtain burning. They made a big curtain and suspended it over the side of the Creek Road Bridge, which is right at that point anyway, and then set fire to it. And I thought, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> it's actually happened. But the end of the old flannelette divide has been a mixed blessing for locals. So all the hipsters wear flannel now? When the Museum of Old and New Art opened 10 years ago, Australians weren't sure what to expect. In a decade, it's turned Tasmania's reputation around. But places like Mona, you know, they get a lot of attention for what they do now, but a lot of the people who work in Mona and run programs there now are the same people that were, you know, tacking up walls out the back of a cafe in Elizabeth Street 25 years ago. We've had quite a comfy middle-class time in Tasmania and we're starting now to see that, that disparity. So we're seeing gentrification in a different way maybe. All those North Hobart apartments have all turned into Airbnbs. I would never be able to afford to live in North Hobart now. At one point, my dad lived there, I lived there, my brother lived there and my mum lived there and all my friends lived there. And now, I do not have a single friend who lives in North Hobart. Living in a tent doesn't give Dylan and Hannah a lot of room to move. The young couple has been living in a tent in the Hobart area for around four months. Getting in and out is just torture. Partly the reason I never sought help when I was homeless was because I didn't see myself as homeless because I didn't look like the people I thought were homeless people. And as winter sets in, life is about to get tougher. Between when I was 15 and 25, I had some dark times and I often found I had nowhere to live. I saw a different side of Hobart. The mornings are terrible. Cold, you're freezing, you're shivering. Despite all the changes and all the social ups and downs, people are still really happy to live in Hobart. Only this yesterday I met somebody and... I said, are you related to Marg and Paul so-and-so? And she said, yes, Paul's my husband's cousin. And I said, oh, Marg's my husband's cousin. And this is what's called a Tasmanian relationship. <laughs> so that sort of thing happens quite often. I think also people are happy here. I remember when uh, we first became aware of global warming, I remember Tasmanians saying, well, that's good, a couple of degrees more wouldn't hurt down here. We could use that. And there are other changes in Tassie. We now call Mount Wellington... Kunani. This is like a kind of bloodline of a street, really, with our ancestors coming and going. The story of Macquarie is partly to blame for the erasure, like the secondary erasure of the, of the history of this island. We're now returning names to the riverways, the Aboriginal names, but it's completely, these streets uh, as well need to be um, revised. Our guide to Elizabeth Street was Kate Kelly. 
Greetings from Hobart was produced by Gregor Pell and was mixed by Simon Branthwaite. Over the next few weeks at Earshot, we're going to take another short break, but we'll be back in October with a season of fresh stories that share one idea. At their heart, they have a promise. Easy promises that have been broken, impossible promises that have been kept. You'll feel powerless as a promise crumbles and laugh at the most outlandish promise on earth. I'm Miyuki Okiranta, so keep following Earshot, because we'll be back real soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.